and it's a force for good on our campus. On March 10th, the feminists and feminist allies of UBC will come together to declare I am a feminist day, to show that anybody can be a feminist, and to start a conversation about the place of feminism in our community. Join us in the sub for an engagement fair on Monday from 11 to 2, and show your pride on campus all day. To learn more, find our event on Facebook at I Am A Feminist Day or on Twitter at, at Reclaim underscore Consent. Due to overwhelming demand, a second night has now been added to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Vancouver performance this summer. While the June 30th show has sold out, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, along with special guest Mark Lanigan, will be returning to the Orpheum Theatre the following night, July 1st. Show on sale on Friday, March 7th at 10am at all Ticketmaster locations and at Ticketmaster.ca. Tree don't care what the little birds say. We go down with the dew in the morning light. For more information, visit nickcave.com.
Hi, welcome to International Women's Day. This is Sarah Lapsley. I'm the host of the Arts Report on Wednesday evenings, and I'm just doing an hour of programming to wrap up sort of the spoken word part of the day. We've been broadcasting since 8 a.m. women's programming. And then we've got some live girl bands in from 8 to 10, so that's really exciting. So we started off at 8 a.m. where Heather McCain hosted an all-female edition of the Saturday Edge featuring world and roots music. Then we had Ashley from the AMS Sexual Assault Support Center and some guests on to discuss their experiences and opinions on the current state of women's representation in the media. Then we had an all-female edition of Cat's Pajamas, a documentary by the beloved Sarah Buchanan on Girls Rock Camp. And then we had a segment on the F-Word Conference, student-led directed conference on feminism, activism, and community. Then we rebroadcasted something from International Women's Day last year with Megan Thomas. And Eleanor Waring hosted an all-female student special featuring a live performance by UBC student Olivia Madden. Then we had more interviews with the UBC Women's Center and um, someone from the UBC Equity Ambassadors about celebrating women at UBC. Then we talked about I Am A Feminist Day, which is coming up March 10th. We had a special news edition, FemCon news edition. And then we just had some music by CJ and Eleanor and Jonathan and some interviews from our sports representative, Jason Wang, from the Provincial Basketball Tournament in Langley. So now it's my turn. And I'm going to do something on the missing women from the downtown east side and just some closing remarks. And so it's going to be a bit of a heavy show. I've spent the day getting it ready and I have to say I, it was sobering it was it was pretty painful so please stay with me through the hour um, we're going to end off with some hopefully inspiring remarks that will you know move us towards hopefully a collective journey we're on a collective journey we're living in a world in crisis for sure and we need to keep moving towards an inclusive world of equal rights for all and respect for the earth and everything. And then stay tuned for live in-studio performance with local all-girl band She Dreams in Color and also the local talented Jody Glenham. I think she just played a few minutes ago. And I just played Joan Jett. Bad reputation. So it's International Women's Day. And it's about celebrating accomplishments and also drawing attention to areas where further action is needed. And I hope to do both here today. So International Women's Day has been observed since the early 1900s. And we've come a long way since then. A lot of women have led us into a generation that we enjoy now where we have equal rights and we're just moving forward so quickly, I, I would say we're seriously kicking ass in every sphere of life. We're politicians, CEOs, professors, artists, musicians, pilots, broadcasters, theologians, paramedics, scientists, athletes. Like, did you watch the Olympics? And most of us have maintained enjoyment and uh, fulfillment in areas that are traditionally relegated to the feminine beauty, fashion, the domestic arts, building family and community, teaching, nursing, counseling, and child-rearing. We we truly have it all. But uh, I was laughing on the way here because we still, you know, there's still a significant 
undergirding of sexism, uh, that it's important we remain vigilant. So I was listening to CKNW with Simi Sarah. She's a host, an excellent host. And uh, she they're play, replaying a segment of a caller that called into her. And he was like, you know, women belong in the home. Women should work in the home. And, and she's just like, really? She said, you know, do you think I should work in the home? And he's like, actually, I'm glad you asked because I think you should. You shouldn't be on the radio. And she's just like, my God, what century are you from? And another thing that made the news was um, a pilot, a female pilot from WestJet being slipped a nasty note on a napkin. I haven't actually really looked into this, but a passenger wrote like a nasty note about, you know, we shouldn't have female pilots. So it's still out there. And as I get into talking about violence against women, we can see how ingrained those ideas are. I know for myself, I feel very fortunate to have choices in my life. So I'm single, childless. Uh, That wasn't an option for women in the past. You really truly had to be married or you were at risk of dying. There was, you couldn't support yourself with a job. Um, And you were owned by, you know, your father and then your husband. And so I'm very lucky. I'm not always happy with my circumstances. But then I think of a story uh, told often by a friend of mine who served in Afghanistan, and I don't think he'll uh, mind me retelling it because he's told it often in the media of serving in Afghanistan and witnessing a girl who had set herself on fire because she was set to be taken into an arranged marriage that she didn't want. And I think of that girl um, and how lucky I am that we're not in that position here and just feeling so compassionate towards women that are still in that situation, trapped in those situations. And I wanted to kind of take a few minutes and start at the beginning. And there was a time when God was a woman, and that was a title from a book I have at home by someone called Merlin Stone, and it's all about the goddess in ancient history and prehistory. And I had a whole thing planned to read from this book about all the incredible pantheon of goddesses that represented the sun and the creation of language, the birth of the universe, justice and law, warrior women. There were gods at one time, goddesses at one time, that represented all this. They were goddesses responsible for bringing agriculture and civilization to the earth. Then I forgot my book at home, so I was kind of crushed about that but I just decided to simplify it a little bit the goddesses present goddess images are present in every culture in the world but one way to kind of simplify it I suppose is this idea of the triple goddess and so the goddess is often signifies the moon or has an association with the moon and the tides and water and so on and the triple goddess is this idea of moving through phases in a woman's life and we talk about the maiden the mother and the crone so we start off as young women innocent and beautiful we move into a mother role of generativity and raising the next generation and creating art or building whatever it is we want and then moving into the crone stage of wisdom and darkness and ultimately you know the bringer of death 
and the starting of the cycle over again. So we see the goddess in the cycles of life. And this idea of the triple goddess has been, you know, it's really more a pagan idea. But I think it it kind of encapsulates um, the goddess in a way that's, you know, because there's a zillion goddesses out there in every culture, as I said. But one I wanted to make a shout out to is one of my favorites, Lakshmi. And I bought a print from Steve Kilby from the church who did a really cool painting of Lakshmi. She's an Indian goddess, and she represents wealth, status, greatness, fame, fertility, spiritual wealth and authority, luck, purity, generosity, wisdom, and the wealth of food. Yum. She confers luster, glory, beauty, power, capability, skillful means, and high rank. Like, that kind of, like, that kind of covers it. So I love Lakshmi, and sometimes... I play this mantra. It's just a few minutes and then we'll come back and move into the next phase of our show. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. This is a mantra of Lakshmi. Om Mahalakshmi Chabidhmahi विष्णुपत्नी तन्नो लक्ष्मी प्रचोदयाहालक्ष्मी विष्णुपत्नी तन्नो लक्ष्मी प्रचोदयात् विष्णुपत्नीचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदयाचोदया
तन्नो लक्ष्मी प्रचोदयाहालक्ष्मी विष्णुपत्नी तन्नो लक्ष्मी Thus ends 11 repetitions of the Lakshmi Mantra. That's nice, isn't it? So at one time, the goddess was revered and womanhood was valued in everyday life. I mean, life was a struggle for survival and we all needed each other. But somewhere in there, patriarchy took over. Not exactly sure when that is. I'm not a historian. But I've got a book here called The Weaker Vessel by a wonderful historian called Antonio Fraser. And she's looking at lives of the women in the 17th century. So although the rise of patriarchy well predated this, she talks about women were known as the weaker vessel, morally inferior, easily tempted, and also tempting. So based on the mythology of the corruption of Eve in the Garden of Eden, she was thought to be easily tempted by evil and Satan. And her sexuality was something that could bubble up and destroy men, this idea of the devouring woman. She was thought, women were thought to be less intelligent. And there's a quote, fruitful wombs, but barren brains. Under the common law of England at the time, and again, this wasn't anything new, women had no rights at all. As an unmarried woman, she belonged to her father, who could marry her at will, and then she became the absolute property of her husband. So it's kind of shocking when you think of you know, that we were thought to be not intelligent or evil. I mean, it's crazy. But this attitude persists. So I want to kind of move into talking a little bit about violence against women. And and it's a painful topic. But I think it's something that's important to address. We know that violence against women happens all over the world, in some places worse than others. In Canada, we actually are a country where equal rights are valued and violence isn't tolerated. We punish it. Yet there's still a tremendous amount of violence and gendered violence. So I just want to say as a precursor, I'm well aware that men get abused and that women are perpetrators of abuse as well as victims. But it's International Women's Day, so I do want to focus on violence against women, although I'm very interested in um, violence against men and female perpetrators as well, so it's important to acknowledge that. But in Canada, we've got quite a frightening statistics. These are statistics I got off Statistics Canada website. So this is from 2012, 21,921 sexual assaults in Canada, and 90% of sexual assaults go unreported. So you can imagine that those 21,000 sexual assaults are much greater. Violent crime, including physical assaults, which is like serious physical assaults, 173,600. That's women age 15 and older in the year 2011. 
Intimate partner violence in 2011, 78,000 incidents of intimate partner violence. And young women between the ages of 15 and 24 are at most risk of violent victimization. And risk decreases as women age. And I thought that was interesting because in evolutionary psychology, that's in line with that, that as women, they, they're more, it has to do with reproduction. So as women are not of reproduction age anymore, they become less of a target. Um, we also will get into some frightening statistics about Aboriginal women. They are three, they have a three times higher rate of violent, violent victimization than non-Aboriginal women. And I've also seen figures that are much higher than that some people say seven times more likely but we do know they experience much more victimization so that's really scary and you know i was just reflecting on the year at ubc we had the sexual predator who committed four sexual assaults seems to have disappeared my guess is he's actually moved away um, and is no longer in the area we also had the rape chance by the UBC Sauter School of Business. That was scary and stupid. So hopefully that won't happen next year and embarrass us again on the national stage. Something that came into my radar, I went to a workshop on it, actually, and I didn't know much about it. And it, it's upsetting. And it causes us to balance out, you know, our respect for other cultures like when cultures clash, we respect other cultures. Multiculturalism is very important in Canada. At times, cultural beliefs clash with our values as Canadians. And honor-based violence is one of those things. But I'm just going to talk about it straight up. This is from the Indo-Canadian Women's Association. What are honor killings? Honor-based violence is a term frequently used to differentiate a particular form of violence against women on the basis that it transpires within the framework of the family and community sphere. It is an act deliberately intended to restore honor to the family and is rooted in men's efforts to control women's sexual and social lives. Honor killing refers to a family member, close relative, or self-appointed community leader killing another person, usually women, who, when they perceive that person has brought dishonor to the family by breaking from traditional uh, social conduct. Um, girls and women are seen to uphold or embody the family or community's honor. So when they do things like defying their family wish to marry someone or dating a Western person, in certain families, this is considered dishonoring. And their honor is really the most important thing. And we have to understand that when we're looking at an honor-based violence. They don't see it as wrong. They see their honor as more important than an individual family member. But legally, we see these killings as murders. But because this cruel conduct is performed in the name of tradition, religion, or culture, the term honor killings is used to specify the motives behind this heinous act. So we did see a couple of incidences in our own province that we'll talk about, and it's really sad. Uh, Jazzy Sidhu, born August 4th, 1975. She was a beautician in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Gorgeous uh, girl. She was murdered in an honor killing by her mother and her uncle. So uh, the family went on a trip to India where she met and fell in love with Sukhwinder Singh Sidhu. He was a rickshaw driver. And they fell in love 
and wanted to marry. And her family had another partner in mind for her as part of an arranged marriage. And they didn't see the rickshaw driver as being her social equal. And they were enraged when they realized that she had secretly married the rickshaw driver. So then the family began over a period of time to conspire her. Um, They attempted to persuade her to get a divorce by beating her and offering to buy her a car. When those attempts were futile, her family persuaded her to sign a form by telling her that she was signing a form that would help her new husband come to Canada. Instead, the form was filled with accusations against Sukwinder, her husband. And when Jassy discovered that she'd been betrayed, she, you know, tried to undo it with officials. Um, and, and then her family kept her in confinement and you'll see this with honor-based violence so her, the family will confine the person so she was confined at home but she got help from the RCMP who who escorted her from her residence she got money from a friend and flew to India to reunite with her husband um, but then she and her husband were kidnapped by killers hired by her uncle and the order was apparently given on the phone by her mother so her husband, Sukwinder, was violently beaten and left to die while Jassy was taken to an abandoned farmhouse where she was murdered, uh, and then her body was dumped. Um, so finally it all came out, and the hired killers were tried and convicted. That was in India, so there was some jurisdictional issues. But finally, in Canada, her, her parents were arrested in 2012, 11 years after Jassy's murder. They're currently awaiting an extradition hearing. So they're probably in jail and to be extradited back to India to face the charges. So that's a really sad case. Also, there was a huge one in India the Shafia family murder. So this was a rich businessman from Afghanistan and he murdered three of his daughters. So he, the father and his wife and the brother murdered their daughters and sisters because they were becoming too westernized and dated some Western guys. Uh, And the story is truly awful they took them on a holiday. And again, you'll see this. They'll convince them, come on a holiday. It's fine. Don't worry. We're not really that mad. And they took them to the Rideau Canal and killed them. Uh, luckily, they arrested them. The trial began. Uh, the verdict was given in 2012. Uh, four counts of first-degree murder for each of the three defendants. So you can see like to me the betrayal like the mother you know just going along with it and you see that I guess in oppressed women um, that you know they'll go along with the perpetrators I just wanted to point out something that the Montreal Gazette did which is that um, honor killings are quite rare So there's been 12 or 13 so-called honor killings in Canada in the last decade. But there's been 58 women a year killed in the country as a result of spousal violence. So honor killings are a very small portion of this. Um, And definitely it's not endorsed by most people in the community. Um, The family imam, who was a religious 
leader said the murders were unforgivable and cautioned against associating honor crimes with Islam, calling the actions incompatible with any religion. And that's true. And certainly our government was very clear that, you know, we don't tolerate violence of this magnitude in our society. But again, we have to be careful and find a balance between honoring cultures in Canada, the diversity of cultures, while obviously taking a stand against this kind of violence. So it made me really sad to read these stories. And I wanted to play a song going out to these women. And and those are only two cases. There's many more that you hear about around the world. So this is a song called Oprah by Oprah Haza. It's called I Want to Fly.
On March 15th at Vancouver's Rickshaw Theatre, several acts will take the stage and sing the songs of Pete Seeger in tribute. Acts include The Sojourners, C.R. Avery, Company B, Ben Rogers, Brother Bob Sumner, and more. Tickets are $10 in advance and $15 at the door and are available at High Life, Red Cat, Zulu, and Neptune Records or online at northerntickets.com. Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Sarah Lapsley. This is International Women's Day. And I'm talking about violence against women. And it's really sad and sobering. I'm going to talk now again. I guess I'm going to move into talking about missing women, the missing women phenomenon. It's something across Canada. There's something like 800 missing women, most of them Aboriginal up north, we have the Highway of Tears. From 1989 to 2006, nine young women went missing or were found murdered along the 724-kilometer length of Highway 16, now commonly referred to as the Highway of Tears. They expanded their investigation, and now I believe there's 30 people that have gone missing on the Highway of Tears, all but one are Aboriginal women. And so there's a good website highwayoftears.ca preventing violence against women talking about the current initiative of they that they have there's a documentary coming out directed by matt smiley and it's going to debut at the human oh it did debut just last night or two nights ago at the human rights watch film festival in toronto but i've recently became interested in something that happened very close to home and that's the missing women of the downtown east side And I don't know where to start other than to just start talking. Um, My sources have been a documentary about Robert Picton, which is very good. And you can just Google Robert Picton documentary. It's about an hour and a half long. Also, a book called Out on the Farm by Stevie Cameron. And also the executive summary of Forsaken, the report of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry by the Honorable Wally T. Opal. Um, And he did a fantastic job on the inquiry into the missing women. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's really helped anything. So this is heavy stuff, and I'm going to spare you the details, although most of us know them. What struck me about the documentary when I watched it was, was how close to me personally it felt I lived not far from that neighborhood during the time that all these women went missing I lived near the meat rendering plant where he took remains of his victims the farm was just five minutes where I currently work so the streets that he drove when you hear here he drove women in his truck on these streets those are the streets I drive every day to work I really truly felt like This happened in my neighborhood and, you know, there but for the grace of God go all of us. All of us could have ended up in these situations that these women did had our life circumstances been as hard as theirs did. 
So Picton grew up in a farm outside of New Westminster. He had a brother, Dave, and a sister, Linda. Kind of a odd family. Um, the mother in particular was quite a harsh woman. Uh, Picton himself had very low intelligence and barely attended school. He was stayed at home to work on the farm. They were pig farmers, uh, and they actually accumulated quite a bit of real estate, which became very valuable. So by the time his parents died, when all this started to unfold, Picton and his brother Dave were very well off. They were multimillionaires, and they had businesses, various businesses. So just trying to figure out where to go next with all this. So Picton lived out on the farm. He was actively a pig farmer. Uh, they had a lot of parties out on the farm, on the property. Uh, they, these were really sleazy, sketchy parties. And a lot of people that attended them, including police in the area, you know, haven't talked about what happened there, but we know there was like cockfighting rings. There was gang rapes that happened there. A lot of gang members would attend these parties. It was not the kind of place you wanted to go. But in general, the Picton brothers were well-liked. People gravitated towards them because they had money. And what friends of Willie Picton say about him was that he was actually a, a helpful person and a very hard worker. His intelligence was so low that people speculate he couldn't have committed these crimes alone because you know he just he didn't you know he had there's some suggestion he might have had mental illness um, but I think his primary problem was just extremely low intelligence so the first hint of trouble happened in approximately 1997 we don't know about women that went missing before that but a woman who's known in the documentary as Stitch, but now we know her by the name of Ms. Anderson, she was a sex trade worker who was picked up by Willie Picton in the downtown east side. So the pattern was always the same, and she, she unfortunately, her story didn't come out in time. She was picked up by Willie Picton. He offered her money for sex. He took her out to the farm. And it wasn't long before he tried to handcuff her. And she was a tough chick, a tough street chick. And she actually had seen a butcher knife on the counter. Sorry, everybody. This is heavy content. And took the initiative and attacked him. She actually slit his throat. And they got into an extremely violent altercation where they were both very wounded uh, she got away and got back out onto the road and people picked her up and took her to hospital. Picton also ended up in hospital and charges were laid against him. But they ended up being dropped because uh, the woman known as Stitch was a very serious drug addict and the Crown decided she wasn't a good witness, that it wouldn't stand up in court, so they dropped it. And because they dropped it, this information about Picton and his pattern then didn't get recorded into the system. Um, and if she had been able to testify and it had gone through, he would have been much higher on the list of people when they started looking into serial killers. So what happened was, you know, just life went on as usual for Picton. Women started to go missing in the downtown east side 
and the police were very slow to respond. Uh, they they felt like the community was made up of people who were drifters. When women went missing, they were like, oh, well, they probably moved on. Some women weren't reported missing for a long time. Other women were quickly reported missing, but no one was listening. Kim Rosmo, who's like an incredible guy, he's a criminologist. He developed quite a fascinating geographic profiling software. So he was a, an employee in the Vancouver Police Department, and he was the first one who, he and another officer were the first one that, that raised alarms that they were dealing with a serial killer. Uh, and the police, again, didn't listen. It was, it was very slow to come, and that's all laid out in the Missing Women's Inquiry. And he fell out with senior members of the department, and he left well before Picton was arrested. But other people appreciated his incredible research and brilliance. He was brain-drained down to Washington, D.C. Now he's at Texas State University, where he currently holds the Endowed Chair in Criminology. So it's too bad nobody listened to him. And another beat cop in the downtown east side who knew women and, were fami and was familiar with the community also said, look, we've got a serious problem. There's a pattern here. Eventually, the police did realize, okay, we might be looking at a serial killer here, and they put together a list of people. And they did investigate a lot of people, including Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. They didn't, Picton wasn't high on the list. So the police are quite blamed um, by the inquiry and by the community, and they are responsible and and it's laid out very clearly in the women's inquiry where they went wrong. But from watching the documentary, I can also see that there was a tremendous confluence of factors that contributed. And part of it was addicts living on Picton's farm. So we don't know why he picked up some women and they became his friends. And, and some of them he killed, but there was at least two or three women who were living on the farm with him and he gave them drug money and gave them other kinds of work and they were his friends and these women were most definitely witness to crimes on the farm and didn't come forward uh, one of them was lynn ellison i believe her name was she actually witnessed a woman's body picked and butchering a woman's body uh, and she told a male friend who went to the police. The police hauled her in, and she then retracted and said she saw nothing. She used the information to blackmail Willie Picton into giving her drug money. There was another uh, male addict that lived out at the farm. Picton just kind of casually confessed to him, oh, this is what I do. This is what happens to women that come here. And this guy got so freaked out. He just jumped on a ferry and disappeared. So if he had come forward, again, if these people had come forward, forward earlier a, a number of murders would have been prevented so eventually just a guy I guess who had partied out at the farm I don't know if you know people in the community had talked and decided someone had to come forward about something but this guy and he was a sketchy guy himself but he found it in himself he just reported um, an unlicensed or illegal weapon on the farm. So something small, just like a rifle or something. But it was enough to give the police reason to come in and search the farm. And they very quickly found evidence. 
like right away, they found belongings of some of the women who had been reported missing, which allowed them to get a further search warrant to search the whole premises. And then we know what happened. Then they found DNA of a lot of the missing women. Um, he was, let's see, he was charged with 26 or 30 he was directly linked to 33 murders he admitted up to 16 more but there were actually 80 unidentified dna remains additionally i believe additionally of both men and women which we could speculate about that that perhaps he was disposing of bodies for other people Uh, he was hooked up with some very sketchy people so Uh, And then the case just blew up and the details were so horrific. It was unreal. And they're all laid out really well in Stevie Cameron's book, Out in the Farm. I won't go into them. And a lot of the details of the the court were actually under a publication ban. And thank God, because we couldn't have handled the details of this. It was disgusting. Um, Picton's away for 25 years, the like, Bef- he can't he's not eligible for parole in 25 years he's about 65 now he will not he'll never see the light of day for seven years he resided at the north fraser pretrial center where i've been several times it's a dismal place he would have been in productive custody for all that time so the other inmates didn't attack him they have quite a code of honor and they don't like people that hurt women or children so he's possibly still in protective custody now um you know, our society is plagued with disturbed people who commit crimes, and we do have serial killers. What's sad about this case is how long it took for it to come out. Um, and as Willie Pickton himself said, the truth never did come out. There's things we don't know, and that may never come out about this case. But Wally Opal wrote an incredible detailed report and comprehensive, full of recommendations, and actually all five of the it's like a five-volume report, and all of them came here to CITR, and uh, I saw them, and I was like, I have to do something on this, and it wasn't until International Women's Day that I did decide to do something on it, um, but what Wally Opal identified as being factors that contributed, in addition to the police uh, problems of jurisdiction, policy, slowness to act, and things like that, just talking about the marginalization and vulnerability of the women. Uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver, Canada's poorest postal code, is often depicted as a place of chaos and criminality. We all know, in Vancouver, we all know what it's like. Yet, at the same time, it's a vibrant, socially committed community and positive sides of the community, which we often overlook, and many services provided in the downtown east side. The condition of the women's lives and their vulnerability to violence. These are women that were had very tragic lives of abuse and then moved to the downtown east side where they were living in the survival sex trade, grossly inadequate housing, food insecurities, health inequities, extreme poverty, drug dependency, uh, and entrenchment. We had the disproportionate number of Aboriginal women. Um, of the 33 women whose DNA were found on Picton's farm, 12 were Aboriginal. So there were those socioeconomic factors that contributed But I want to make sure we get to talking about the women because that's why we're here today, honoring the women. So each of these women was a valued member of her community. Each had hopes and dreams. Each woman was loved. And now each woman is missed. So I wanted to... 
in some of his reports, he outlines some of the women's stories just just to make sure they're not forgotten because he does point out that we, we see them as sort of an anonymous group. But I just found the story of Sarah DeVries, one of 20 women whose murder for whose murder picked and will never be tried. The legal system really, they they really pulled together. They made sure their charges were really tight. They didn't want to lose this case on a technicality. So in fact, he was only tried for a certain percentage of the murderers. Um, but we know he did the others. Sarah DeVries was a vibrant, beautiful woman known on the downtown east side. She took care with her appearance, dressing well and pouring out her sensitive soul in poetry and diaries. She was adopted into a upper middle class West Gray, West Point Gray home. Her father was actually a science professor here at UBC. And from what she writes in her diary, it sounds like she was abused by him both emotionally and sexually. She ended up on the downtown east side, but she had a lot of friends. And one of them uh, was Wayne Lang, a former John of hers. And he grew to be quite fond of her. And he was instrumental in, in, in raising the alarms that she was missing and putting up posters and keeping her memory alive. Um, and her and Sarah DeVries' sister Maggie has written a book about her called Missing Sarah, based on DeVries' life and her personal diaries. So I just wanted to take a moment to read the name of the missing women's on the air. And I hope you'll stay with me as we do this. It'll take a few minutes. This list is, includes 67 women. Um, so again, there's, you know, he, he, we found DNA for 33 women, but there's about 67 women that we believe are picked in victims. And I'll just read them now. And in the background, I'm going to play one of my favorite Aboriginal singers, Tanya Tagak. Marlene Abagosis, Serena Abbotsway, Sharon Abraham, Elaine Allenbach, Angela Arsenault, Sherry Baker, Cindy Beck, Yvonne Bowen, Andrea Borhaven, Heather Bottomley, Heather Shinock, Nancy Clark, Wendy Crawford, Marcella Crazen, Don Cray, Sarah DeVry, Jane Doe, Cheryl Donahue, Tiffany Drew, Elaine Dumba, Sheila Egan, Kara Ellis, Gloria, Gloria Findishin, Cynthia Felix, Marnie Frey, Jennifer Firminger, Catherine Gonzalez, Rebecca Guno, Michelle Gurney, Inga Hall, Helen Harlmark, Ruby Hardy, Janet Henry, Tanya Hollock, Sherry Irving, Angela Jardine, Andrea Josbury, Patricia Johnson, Deborah Jones, Catherine Knight, Carrie Kosky, Maria Lalibert, Stephanie Lane, Kelly Little, Laura Ma, Jacqueline McDonnell, Diana Melnick, Lee Minor, Jacqueline Murdoch, Lillian O'Dare, Georgina Papin, Tanya Peterson, Sherry Braille, Diane Rock, Elsie Sebastian Jones, Ingrid Sowett, Dorothy Spence, Teresa Triff, Sharon Ward, Kathleen Watley, Olivia William, Angela Williams, Teresa Ann Williams, 
Rona Wilson, Brenda Wolf, Frances Young, and Julie Young. just read the list of the 67 missing women from the downtown east side so that's heavy and let's not let this happen again there was quite uh anger going around in the community on a national level um, that the government has refused to call a public inquiry, a national inquiry into missing aboriginal women across the country so that's thanks a lot International Women's Day, and also the recent murder of a St. Mary's University student, Loretta Saunders, who was actually doing her thesis on the phenomenon of missing Aboriginal women. She herself got murdered. Uh, I think it was the result of her roommates. Uh, she took into sociopathic roommates who ended up killing her. So um, reducing violence in our society, you can protect yourself. Keep your eyes out. Keep your eyes out for each other. There are predators out there. You need to know how to identify them. We can't always prevent that, but we can do something towards it. Let's stop glamorizing violence as a society. Reduce poverty, treat addiction. Violence is like a virus spreading intergenerationally. We must stop it. We must adopt the values of peace, tolerance, goodwill towards others. I, I see a lot of arguing just even on my own Facebook feed of people that are so mad and they polarize, we need to come together and work together for solutions. There's enough suffering in life without us adding to it deliberately. But I hope this was helpful in some way, or just maybe it's important to look at the issues of women against violence head on because we minimize it. You know, when the Frosh Week rape chants, uh, Margaret Wentz from the National Post wrote a really nasty anti-female article talking about we're sort of making up this idea of rape culture. It was very demeaning uh, and stupid. So we need to draw attention to this and draw attention to the individual stories so that we, we don't forget to take violence against women seriously and violence against all people seriously. We need to live in a more loving world. We are in serious trouble right now. But I want to end on a positive note. And we've got some cool live bands coming up. The Goddess is alive and well in our society. Women are empowering themselves. We have choices available to us that we haven't had in historically. We're contributing incredible amounts of good to our society. So get out there. Have fun. Don't buy into this culture's obsession with unattainable beauty. Nurture yourself. Accept yourself as you are right now. Do the things you love to do. Follow your passion, whatever it is. Value your femininity. Let's redress the imbalance of masculine and feminine in our society. And that goes for everybody, men and women, whatever gender, wherever you are on any kind of continuum. Increasingly, men are taking on feminine roles as well as women are taking on traditionally masculine roles. So let's keep that up. If you want female role models, they are out there. They're everywhere. 
So thank you so much for listening. Um, and join me on Wednesday between 5 and 6 for the Arts Report. And we've got these great bands coming up. Jody Glenham and She Dreams in Color. So you must stay tuned to CITR. Our International Women's Day programming will wrap up at 10 p.m. But I'm going to leave you with an artist that I like very much. Her name is Liz Fair, and this is about being a fabulous woman. It's called Extraordinary. Who's going to take me to school? I am. And make me chicken fingers. Me. And check my nose buggies for infections. We'll find someone else to do that last thing. Mm-hmm.